I remember speaking to Rabbi Israel, the Hillel rabbi, when I came in, about the Jewish community, and he said, well, in your class, there's about 100 Jews. And he said, you know, when I get the list of the Jews in the freshman class every year, it does come out to about 100. So I think there might be a quota. That's Joe Lieberman, the former senator from Connecticut, the man who almost became vice president in 2000. He was in the Yale class of 1964, and he's reminiscing about arriving on campus as a freshman from an Orthodox Jewish home in the fall of 1960. He wasn't the only one to believe that Yale capped its number of Jewish students at 10%. I heard a similar story from Benjamin Zucker, class of 1958. First day after I got my papers and stuff, I went beeline over to the Hillel office, and at that moment, the Catholic father comes in, who's the head of St. Thomas More and the Catholic students. And he said, Rabbi, they changed the quotas. Last year, we were 11% and you were 10%. And this year, you're 11% and we're 10%. The rabbi looks up and he had a great sense of humor. And he said, well, father, He said, I don't know if you're aware that I don't set the quota policy for Yale. Zucker saw what was up. When he looked around campus, there were tons of preppy Protestants. These boys came from schools like Exeter and Groton and Andover and Hotchkiss. And then there was a smaller number of Jews, a number that seemed to be almost calculated. There were these 110 students, precisely, who were Jews out of a class of 1,007. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Gatecrashers, a podcast about the very American encounter between Jews and the Ivy League. In our first three episodes, we heard a lot about quotas, fixed limits on the number or percentage of people a school would admit from a particular category. We learned how quotas for Jews began at Columbia and how they came to Dartmouth. We heard about quotas at Princeton's eating clubs. So it's time to delve deeply into the idea of a quota. Where does it come from? How is it enforced? And most important, how does it die? At Yale, quotas were introduced early in 1923. And unlike at Columbia, where they pretty much disappeared after World War II, at Yale, they lasted into the 1960s. Lyndon Johnson was president, American soldiers were dying in Vietnam, and the Beatles had come to America before the number of Jews at Yale was allowed to rise above 10%. This is the story of how a half century of quotas finally ended when a few brave administrators, men of the elite Protestant upper class, decided that their beloved WASP redoubt could admit, no, needed to admit, more Jews. This is Gatecrashers, Episode 4, Yale and the Slow Death of Quotas. Most Jewish Ivy Leaguers have heard the story that once upon a time, there was a cap on the number of Jews at their school. And according to the story, the number is always 10%. We heard that story at the top of this episode. Ben Zucker got to Yale in 1958, and the rabbi told him, you're one of the 10%. Joe Lieberman got there two years later, and the very same rabbi told him, you're one of the 10%. But whenever people's memories line up a little too neatly, I get suspicious. I mean, 
Did anyone ever really count Jewish names in a directory or yearbook and come up with the number 10%? As a journalist, I've been covering Jews for a couple decades now, and I'm pretty good at sussing out who's a Jew and who's not. I know, for example, which last names Jews often adopted to sound less Jewish. I know that Garfield often used to be Garfinkel. I can Jew spot from a mile off. And even so, I don't know that I could spot the 100 Jews in a class of 1,000. So these stories of precise 10% quotas, always 10%, no more, no less, I think they have a whiff of urban legend. So I decided to pick one Ivy League school, the one I attended, and get to the very bottom of the quota question. I began by asking the man who has studied the history of Yale Jewry more closely than anyone else. My name is Dan Oren. I'm an associate professor adjunct of psychiatry at Yale University. And I also, among other things, wrote a book called Joining the Club, A History of Jews and Yale. Oren reminded me of something that's easy to forget. Early in the 20th century, the Ivy League schools were pretty much open admission. If you passed a basic threshold of qualifications and had a little bit of money, you could enroll. But only Protestants, especially from New England boarding schools, wanted to enroll. There were very few Jews knocking at the door. Through the 19th century, there were relatively few Jews in America. Those Jews who came to Yale uh, either to be students, even more rare cases to teach, they were welcomed as exotic oddities. So just like having an Asian student at Yale, a Jewish student at Yale was a welcome minority, a welcome sign of tolerance and Yale's open-mindedness. But then, in the early 1920s, at urban ivies like Columbia and Yale, that began to change. As more and more students applied, uh, Jews, some Italians, the numbers became larger and larger, and Yale realized it had more students in general than it really had space for, both in the dormitories and in the classroom. So they announced publicly a committee on limitation of numbers. They decided they would come up with a scheme in which to limit the total enrollment. Now, nothing wrong with that. Today, most colleges, and all colleges that want to be selective, limit enrollment. That's what it means to be selective to select which people are coming rather than just letting everyone in. But Yale, in 1922, used the decision to cap the next year's class size as a pretext for specifically capping the number of Jews as well. Jews were a curiosity at an enrollment percentage of 1%. By 10% enrollment, they were significantly visible on campus. And most of them were poorer Jews and less sophisticated economically, less integrated into American ways. So the faculty and deans privately worked out a scheme specifically to limit the number of Jews who were the most visible of the unwelcome or the undesirables at that time. From the point of view of old Yale, the Yale of Protestants, the Jewish population was reaching a crisis point. In 1901, the school had been 2% Jewish. In 1921, it was 7.5%. But the real problem was on the horizon. The 1921 freshman class was 13% Jewish. So Yale decided, in secret, to manage their Jewish quotient the way Columbia did. They adopted a whole bunch of measures designed to squeeze Jews out. They set up the modern admissions criteria that were used throughout the Northeast, uh, throughout many American colleges, 
from the 1920s through the most recent years. That included the standardized tests. So when tests like the SATs were first introduced as requirements, it was thought the people who would be most likely to do well in the SATs would be traditional white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Scholarships were increasingly restricted so that it was harder for Jews to be given scholarships. Interviews were instituted so that they could see if the person was the right type of person. Did they behave well? Did they act in a polite way as opposed to the, a pushy Jewish stereotype? They also started asking questions about parental ethnic background. This is also when Yale formally decided to favor legacies, boys whose fathers had gone to Yale. It was the first school in the country, maybe the world, to make legacy preference its official policy. And Yale did so explicitly to keep Jews out. From 1927 to 1931, the proportion of Yaleys with fathers who had gone to Yale increased from 14 to 21 percent. In 1936, the enrollment of legacies was almost 30 percent and almost zero of them were Jewish boys. So they were squeezing out Jews in every way they could. And in the process, they were creating policies like legacy preference that are with us even today. But I still wasn't clear. I had to ask Dan Oren, was the quota actually a strict 10%? To my knowledge, there was never a formal quota where they said, every 10th slot is being given to a Jew. Instead, it was something at the back of the interviewer's minds, and at least once a year, the dean of Yale College and the dean of admissions at Yale College would sit down and they would go through the list of admitted students and make their best guess, and they would compliment themselves when they found that the eventual enrollment came out pretty close to 10%. By the way, I love Oren's suggestion that the admissions people would compliment themselves when they got close to the 10% mark. I'm picturing a happy hour. Maybe they could knock off early on a Friday to celebrate a 10% Jewish freshman class. Anyway, it seems that from the early 1920s on, there was an attempt, not a scientific process, but a general attempt to have entering classes that were no more than a 10th Jewish. But then, in the late 1940s, things began to change. First of all, there was a national movement to open up the universities. Millions of veterans were enrolling in college on the GI Bill, very often the first in their families to go to college. But also, people were beginning to pay attention to racial and ethnic integration in schools, what today we would call diversity. In 1950, Thurgood Marshall, as head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, argued the case of Sweat v. Painter before the Supreme Court. In this case, plaintiff Herman Sweat had been refused admission to the University of Texas Law School on the grounds that Texas prohibited integrated education. And Sweat prevailed paving the way for the landmark Brown v. Board of Education case just four years later, the case that ended legally mandated segregation in public schools. And in the late 1940s, just as Marshall was working for black equality in education, there was a presidential commission that investigated quotas in higher education, and also a special commission in Connecticut that looked into quotas at boarding schools. And of course, after World War II, the Holocaust was on people's minds. So discrimination against Jews seemed particularly shameful. America had to grapple with the destruction of European Jewry and with the nascent civil rights movement. Clearly, the old restrictions would not last long. 
And in fact, in 1946, Yale did pass a resolution explicitly forbidding quotas for racial and religious groups. Let's say that again. In 1946, there was an official public declaration that there would be absolutely positively no anti-Jewish quotas. And Yale did take some steps to make that a reality. For example, the question about religious affiliation was removed from the application. But the problem is that discrimination isn't always overt. Usually, it's enforced not with strict rules, but with winks and nods. In fact, in 1947, the year right after Yale officially promised to end its quotas, the novel Gentleman's Agreement and the movie based on the novel came out. And Gentleman's Agreement was literally about how anti-Semitism mostly takes the shape not of explicit rules, but of, you know, agreements between gentlemen. Agreements not to let a Jew into the law firm or not to let a Jew buy a house in the neighborhood. Come off it, Jordan. It's detestable, but that's the way it is. It's even worse in New Canaan. There, nobody can sell or rent to a Jew. And even in Darien, where Jane's house is and my house is, there's sort of a gentleman's agreement when you're... Gentlemen's. They're persistent little traitors to everything that this country stands for and stands on, and you have to fight them. Not just for the poor, poor Jews, as Dave says, but for everything this country stands for. That was Gregory Peck and Dorothy McGuire. The movie was big in 1947. It won the Oscar for Best Picture. And so, despite all the best intentions, despite efforts to accept Jews at elite schools, despite a popular culture that pushed for inclusivity, Yale did not get more diverse in the 1950s. The opposite happened. It got preppier. The gentlemen's agreements got more powerful than ever. Here's historian Jeffrey Cabaservice, who wrote a book about Yale and the Protestant elite. Yale, if anything, actually, after World War II, becomes a more conservative place than it had been. There is an almost conscious effort to reorient the school toward what being what it had been in the 1920s. Students start wearing coonskin coats to football games and drinking out of flasks. In 1952, for example, you for the first time have a dress code imposed in the dining halls, uh, making it mandatory for the undergraduates to wear coat and tie. This had never been necessary in the past, but the people who came in uh, from having fought in World War II were just not in a mood to wear coat and tie, let alone freshman year beanies or a lot of the other kind of somewhat demeaning things imposed on new students. Uh, and so a lot of the old traditions went out the window and there was a very conscious attempt to reimpose them after these uh, new students had swept through the institution. So just for fun, I have here a class directory from the Yale class of 1950. The class admitted in 1946, the year that Yale promised the world that there were no quotas against Jews. And if you look at the names, it sure doesn't seem like the quotas had gone away. In fact, it seems way less than 10% Jewish. I'm just going to start reading. William H. Crocker, John O. Crosby, Robert F. Crosby, Robert Cross, David Crowell, Richard Crowley, Richard Poor Cunningham, Richard H. Curtis, Robert O. Curtis, Robert Cusimano, (laughs) there's an Italian, James DeFore, James Dagus, Harold Daigle, Richard Daly, Francis Daly, Donald Daly, Francis Damien, Edward Dana, Radcliffe Dana. Friends, if you like what you're hearing on Gatecrashers, you might also like another podcast that I host. 
Unorthodox is the universe's leading Jewish podcast, and each week, my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and I, discuss the news of the Jews, and we interview two guests, one Jewish and one a Gentile of the week. We talk to fascinating people. Some of our guests have included comedian Judy Gold, Congresswoman Katie Porter, authors like A.J. Jacobs, Chuck Klosterman, and more. Guys, this show is a lot of fun. It's irreverent, but not silly, at least not most of the time, and it will always get you thinking. You can find Unorthodox, a Tablet Studios production, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. To get a better grasp of Yale in the 1950s, I interviewed Sam Chauncey, who is a legendary Yale administrator. He was one of those behind-the-scenes guys who was never a president or provost, but who kind of ran the school. Among other things, he helped manage the integration of women in 1969. He was one of the co-education czars. But he had also worked in admissions, and he had seen it all. Henry Chauncey Jr., nicknamed Sam, uh, graduated from Yale College in 1957, worked at Yale from 57 to 82, and ended up being secretary of the university. My family came to the United States in the 17th century, and my great-great-great-whatever-number-grandfather, Charles Chauncey, was the second rector of Harvard. Then... Some time passed, and his descendant, Israel Chauncey, was one of the 10 founders of Yale, one of the 10 ministers who, who started Yale. Chauncey said there was a pervasive anti-Semitism at Yale in the 1950s. And although it was generally kept quiet, it occasionally poked through in ugly ways. As a freshman at Yale, I was on scholarship, and all scholarship students had to work in the dining halls. And so I was serving my classmates. and. One of the students sitting at a table said to the other, he doesn't look like a Jew to me, but most of those poor guys are. He didn't say it to me. He said it to his friend. And incidentally, he then swept the dishes off the table and looked at me and said, pick them up. After Chauncey graduated in 1957, he got hired to stay on as an assistant dean. And one of his jobs was serving part-time on the admissions committee. I went to the first meeting and a senior dean from the engineering school was present. And I remember him slapping his hand on the table and saying, we got to stop admitting so goddamn many Jews. Chauncey went and told his boss, dean of Yale College, William Clyde Devane, that he wanted off the committee. He absolutely did not want to work with these people. But Devane told him to give it one more go. He said to me, Sam, if you will go back to the next meeting and you're unhappy after the next meeting, I'll take you off the committee. So I went back to the next meeting. The committee was told that this particular dean who had made that remark was no longer a member of the committee. After that, Chauncey never again heard anyone on the committee say a word about Jews. So it seemed Yale was weeding out the explicit bigots. But still, there was a ton of implicit bias. And it was present not just at Yale, but at the high schools where Yale recruited. You could have a recommendation from a high school or a prep school that said, Johnny is Jewish, but he's a very bright student. No secondary school in their right mind would ever allow a remark like that ever to be put on paper today. But you had remarks like that. To get a sense of just how clubby this world was, consider that well into the 1950s and 60s, if you went to an elite boarding school, you didn't even have to go to the Ivy League campus to have your college interview. The Ivy League campus came to you. Admissions sent representatives to all the top private schools. 
This is actually what happened to my dad, who was class of 1963 at Shadyside Academy outside Pittsburgh. The Harvard admissions officer came to meet with all the top boys, and he gave my dad a maybe. And then the Yale admissions officer came, and he gave my dad a definitely. I asked my dad, Tim Oppenheimer, what he remembered. We were told, I think, beforehand that they would grade us either A, B, or C. A meant that we were automatically in, and B meant that we had a so-so chance, so we could still apply, obviously, and take our chances. The C meant that, uh, you know, forget it. I did end up getting an A from Yale, along with two other guys in my class, and I ended up getting a B from Harvard. I was the only Jew to get into Yale and a Jewish classmate got into Princeton. And the admissions people from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton came every year. I think the process probably worked the same way every year. So my dad applied only to Yale. That's all the work he had to do. But these high school visits injected another form of bias into the process. Sam Chauncey told me about a particularly memorable prep school recruiting trip that he made in the late 1950s. I can remember going to... um the Hodgkiss School in Upper Connecticut to interview a group of students and an official, I can't remember if it was the headmaster or the college counselor, when we would go over all the students I'd interviewed, specifically told me which ones were Jewish, but didn't tell me which ones were Catholic or Episcopalian or whatever. Still, Chauncey said that except for that one time, nobody in the admissions office ever talked openly about Jews. So did that mean there were no quotas? Not quite. After all, Chauncey was a very junior guy. He didn't really know how the sausage got made. So one time he asked his boss, point blank, and he was told, yes, indeed, there was a quota. I think it was a 7%. When I heard the remark about the, we're not going to admit any, so many damn Jews, I asked, is there a quota? The response I got, well, something like 7%, give or take. So Yale developed quotas to keep Jews out in 1923 officially renounced these quotas in 1946, but really kept them in place throughout the 1950s. But then, around 1960, Yale changed course, for real this time. Jewish quotas became a thing of the past. So how did this finally happen? I asked Dan Oren, and he said there were two impetuses for Yale to really end the quotas. One was the uh, launch of Sputnik at the end of the 1950s. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. It meant that Russia suddenly had potentially a weapon. It could weaponize space, theoretically, and could put all of the world at risk. And that terrified the American leadership. Fears were raised by leading Americans that the American way of life was in danger because of Russia's new power. And that scared the academic establishment. It scared it at Yale, it scared it nationwide. And so when the academic establishment started to ask itself, how has Russia accomplished so much? We had been on top of the world militarily uh, in 1945 with the atomic bomb, and it became very clear that the American educational establishment, including Yale, was excluding many of its best and brightest And that was not just having a consequence at Yale, but potentially threatening all of Yale life. And while the Soviets and the arms race and the Cold War pushed Yale from the outside, internal forces also came into play. At Yale specifically, 
President Griswold commissioned a Blue Ribbon Committee. Uh, it was nicknamed the Dube Committee in honor of its chair, Professor Leonard Dube, and uh, who was, there, there's a whole Jewish story himself. He never publicly identified as a Jew, but it's very clear now that he had uh, Jewish ancestry that he was quite aware of. He chaired a Blue Ribbon Committee to examine the role of Yale College and to examine the role of education in Yale College. And over a course of a, of a couple years, they came up with what came to be called the Dube Report, which recommended that without any hesitation, academic capacity be the number one guiding force in Yale admissions. And once you set that as a criteria, it is inevitable that doors will open to Jews. So that, that was not a specifically pro-Jewish change, but it was something that had clear pro-Jewish implications. I went and found this Dube report, which was issued on April 13th, 1962. It's 19 pages long, but its conclusions are stated right at the beginning. It reads, and I'm cutting out a few words here, the changes wrought by time, by developments in scholarship science and technology, have imposed new responsibilities upon Yale and a few comparable universities. As the nations of the world have realized that hope lies in better education, moreover, we must reassert, therefore, a readiness to prepare for service in our society the most promising possible candidates we can attract. Yale is no longer an 18th century academy or a 19th century college, but is a university of the 20th century in one of the great nations. Under these conditions, the task of advancing knowledge and of training future scholars must be emphasized. For the improvement of our national culture, as well as for the good name of Yale, the students we educate should exemplify and radiate the power and grace of learning. More of the graduates of Yale College, we think, must become professional scholars and teachers. It is incumbent upon Yale and similar institutions consciously to increase the number and proportion of learned men in our society. Now, it sounds unbelievable today, but in 1962, putting academic achievement first as a desirable trait for admission was seen as radical. Because honestly, that wasn't what Yale was or had ever really been. Here's Jeff Cabaservice again. Yale was founded in 1701. It was largely founded by Congregationalist ministers. In the 19th century, Yale was preeminent in the sciences, but it really had lost that distinction by the 20th century. Uh, by the time that Kingman Brewster was an undergraduate at Yale in the late 1930s and early 1940s, Yale is in many ways a sort of very tight-knit, very traditional, somewhat parochial institution geared around producing young gentlemen from the New England WASP upper class. It had much more grandiose notions of itself, really, as sort of America's preeminent all-American institution producing all-American boys for leadership in the country. Kingman Brewster, who became president of Yale in 1963, coined a famous phrase for the stereotypical, waspy, elitist version of Yale College, what he feared Yale might become if he didn't take action. Brewster worried that it was becoming what he called a finishing school on the Long Island Sound. It's not that Yale didn't have a good reputation. It did. But for most of its history, it was known for things other than intellectual rigor. Crazy as it sounds today, Yale was actually known as a sports powerhouse. Harvard, in dark helmets, kicks off to Yale, wearing white headgear at New Haven as the traditional rivals meet in the climax game of the Big Three season. 
Yale's ball, and Clint Plank, number 14, mainspring of the Eli attack, carries the ball on a spectacular run. Yale continues to drive, Wilson carrying on an end sweep, and Yale, his big three champion. Yale itself was best known nationally as a football factory. And there were years in which Yale was so dominant at football that it was not only undefeated and untied, but also unscored upon. You know, football and sports were the focus of undergraduate loyalties, along with a few other activities like singing groups uh, and the like. And academics really much came in in second or third or, or just last place. The Dube report suggested that Yale administrators move away from finishing schools and football factories and towards, well, universities like we know them today, primarily academic institutions. And by 1965, Yale would find just the man to make this change happen. So here's the deal. If you're listening to this podcast, I know two things about you. You care about learning and you care about Jews. And if you care about both of these things, do we have an amazing podcast for you? It's called Take One, and it's hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz. Every day, we read just one page of the Talmud, a very old book offering some surprisingly modern insights into every aspect of modern life. Episodes are very short, just six or seven minutes each. And the guests are surprising. You never know when your favorite congressperson or Hollywood actor or NBA star may drop in for a dose of spiritual self-help, courtesy of Judaism's foundational ancient text. So start your day with a Talmudic shot of inspiration and visit us at tabletmag.com slash take one. In the early 1960s, Yale already had an admissions director who was very interested in making Yale less of a school for rich white boys. His name was Arthur Howe, and his father had been president of Hampton Institute, a historically black college. It's now known as Hampton University. Howe was raised on the Hampton campus, a white boy in a mostly black environment in Virginia in the 1930s. He really wanted Yale to diversify. Going co-ed was his idea, although it didn't happen on his watch. But he was the first admissions director to admit a freshman class that was half public school students. That was in 1963. Before that, every Yale class in the 20th century had been majority private school boys. So Arthur House started the project of opening Yale up. And in 1965, when he retired, President Kingman Brewster went looking for someone to really take the reins. Brewster appointed R. Inslee Clark, better known as Inky Clark, to be director of admissions. Now, Clark is infamous today because of what happened after he left Yale to be headmaster of the Horace Mann School, a prep school in New York City, where he served from 1970 to 1991. Decades after he died, Clark was implicated in a large sexual abuse scandal at his school. In fact, his name was later stripped from an athletic field that had been named in his honor at Horace Mann. But at Yale, Clark was seen as a heroic democratizer somebody who opened the place up to minorities. Clark was pretty young when he took over admissions. He was only eight years out of Yale himself. He was class of 57, 
the same year as Sam Chauncey. Clark was every bit an old blue. He had been president of the Fraternity Council and a member of the Secret Society Skull and Bones. He was also ambitious and smart. And he decided that if Yale wanted to be diverse, it had to look for people everywhere, in different geographic locations and among different ethnicities. Here's Jeff Caviservice. So Kingman Brewster brought Inky Clark in for an interview and said, when it comes to changing Yale's admissions, would you rather be an engineer or an architect? And Clark said, I want to be an architect. I want to completely redesign the uh, way that we recruit students to Yale. I want new admissions officers. I want us to cover the country seeking out talent. And I want a student body that's much more intellectually ambitious and capable and one which is much more oriented toward the sciences and one which also has uh, a wider diversity, let's say, uh, of geographic origin, but also of ethnic and social origin. And Brewster approved of that vision, and he appointed Clark. And this vision that Cava Service described, if Clark was to make it a reality, if he was to create a Yale that was more intellectual, more academically ambitious, better in the sciences, well, according to Dan Oren, everyone knew what that meant. Dean Clark said to me in an interview years later, nobody told him to admit more Jews, um, but the president clearly told him to admit people for academic capacity, and he was well aware, And as he said to me, when you're going to be admitting people of better academic capacity and talent, you're going to be admitting more Jews. It wasn't just about Jews. It was about seeking talent wherever you could find it, especially in the middle classes and in public schools. It was a total revolution in admissions. Here's Sam Chauncey again. He was interested in changing the face of Yale in terms of prep school versus high school. He would go to a prep school and say, in the past, we have been admitting 10 people pretty regularly from your school. Don't expect that to continue. Of course, there was pushback. Dan Oren heard this one story from Clark about a meeting of Yale's board of trustees, which is called the Yale Corporation. So Dean Clark was called in to a regular meeting of the Yale Corporation and asked to give a report on changing trends in admissions. So Dean Clark reported to me that he talked about the increasing educational priorities were leading to all kinds of changes in the kinds of students who were coming into Yale. And as he recalled, one crusty older member of the corporation turned to him and said to him, frankly, you know, what you're talking about is the admission of a lot of uh, public school students and Jews to the Yale College campus. And then the, the board member said, look around at this table on our corporation. There are no public school graduates here. There are no Jews here. How can you be doing this? And in fact, Inky Clark was doing exactly what he had been encouraged to do by President Kingman Brewster. So in the face of this pushback, how did Clark go about changing the culture of Yale admissions to include not just more Jews, but more black students and more public school boys? Here's Cava Service. Part of what he did was simply to ease out the people who were associated with those attitudes and bring in new, often younger, admissions officers. He also wanted to hire more admissions officers so that Yale could really travel more widely to the nation's schools. I mean, there are 25,000 schools across the country, and Yale only at its zenith covered a small fraction of them. Uh, Once upon a time, virtually every minimally qualified Uh, Andover student would have been admitted to Yale College. Now Clark said, you know, we're actually really only looking at people from the top quarter 
of the Andover class. Clark really created a firestorm at Andover by telling them that he was actually going to be much more selective in his intake from them. And the same actually was true of the number of alumni children. Uh, The percentage of alumni kids was cut in half virtually overnight from about 25% in, let's say, the class of 1968 to 12% in the class of 1970, which was Inky Clark's first admitted class. And this really caused huge blowback from the alumni. Uh, And also, to some extent, it took the preparatory schools by surprise. They, for decades, had seen their mission as producing well-rounded young men without any particular intellectual distinction, but who would be good uh, all-around boys uh, with sound morals and deep patriotism. And all of a sudden, they were told that they actually had to serve an entirely different function. Okay, so that's how you cut back the Protestants. But how do you get Jews? Well, you go where the Jews are. Yale started recruiting at schools it had always deliberately ignored. Probably predominant among them was the Bronx High School of Science. And those students had an extraordinary education in the sciences, which was not well-rounded, but it was extraordinary partly because the ability of the student body was so high that they raised each other's level of performance. And yet this was a school that had been all but shut out of Yale admissions uh, in the 1950s. Uh, I think I calculated over something like a 10-year period. Andover sent 275 students. The Bronx High School of Science sent seven students. And so when Inky Clark comes to the Bronx High School of Science and says that these students are going to be fairly considered and he's encouraging their admission, um, you know, this is a school whose student body was something like 90% Jewish. So by admitting more Bronx High School of Science students, the number of Yale's Jewish students was bound to go up. And according to Inky Clark, uh, the representation of Jewish students at Yale doubled in the first year of his admissions. So that was the class that entered in the fall of 1966. They graduated as the Yale class of 1970. That was the first year since 1922 that Jewish applicants were considered on the basis of academic merit, with no formal or informal quotas to hold them back. After half a century, Jewish high school seniors could apply to Yale knowing that Yale really wanted them. But meanwhile, all those Jewish Yaleys who had passed through, knowing that they were one of the lucky 10% or 7%, they managed to keep their heads up and they never forgot who they were. Just ask Senator Lieberman, who woke up every morning in those big Gothic dormitories, surrounded by preppy Christian classmates, and wrapped his arm and forehead in tefillin, the small boxes containing scrolls of Hebrew prayer, which religious Jews put on every morning. One thing I never stopped, couldn't stop, is putting tefillin on in the morning, even If all I did was say the bracha over the twillin on my arm, the bracha twillin on my head, and say the shema or moda'ani, I mean, if I was rushed, that was it. But that was some kind of uh, compelling, I, I say again, mysterious connection to my Judaism. I never stopped. And although he started his mornings somewhat unusually, he never felt like any less of a Yale man. I loved Yale. Yale was transformational. I met wonderful fellow students who remained friends throughout my life. Really remarkable. I actually met Senator Lieberman once in my own college years. It was on September 5th, 1995, at the grand opening of the Slifka Center, Yale's brand new Center for Jewish Life. It was the fall of my senior year, and the senator was there, one of many speakers addressing a huge outdoor crowd at the ribbon cutting. The excitement was palpable. 
The old kosher kitchen had been in a pretty ratty basement on Crown Street. But the Slifka Center had a spiffy new dining facility, and it immediately got tons of use. I remember Shabbat dinners during that first year, crowded Friday nights that began with prayers and singing, and didn't seem to end until hours after dessert had been served. Most of the students who would come didn't keep kosher. I didn't. And many weren't even Jewish. They were Gentiles who came along with Jewish roommates or friends. Basically, Jewish religion and culture were dominant themes at Yale in the mid-90s, as they were at all the Ivy League schools. Jews were cool. And as for me, the Yale of the mid-90s was where I learned how to be a Jew. My classmates included numerous future rabbis and Jewish educators, people who had so much to teach me. And I learned from them over dinner or in the classrooms. Even though I was born Jewish, Yale was the first place I ever went to high holiday services or a Shabbat dinner or Friday night prayers. The guy across the hall from me in my dorm was always trying to recruit me for Alpha Epsilon Pi, the Jewish fraternity. By the mid-90s, Yale was probably more than a quarter Jewish. And there was such a variety of Jews. It was the perfect place to figure out what kind of Jew to be. Secular or observant, reform or orthodox, faithful or deeply skeptical. It was all in play. Basically, everything that administrators like Inky Clark wanted, a place where Jewish students would feel truly at home, had come to pass. It was there for me in a way that it was not yet there for my dad in the 1960s. And today, in 2022, well, it's different. I just concluded 16 years of teaching English at Yale. And I have to say, the place is definitely less Jewish than in the 90s. Some people think that the percentage of Jewish Yalies today may be under 10%, lower now than it was when quotas were keeping Jews out. That would be ironic, to say the least. I've met Jewish alumni who are very angry about this, who wonder why the school isn't a quarter or a fifth Jewish anymore. In a way, that's an absurd question. Jews are only about 2% of the American population, and such a huge Jewish presence at Yale was never going to last. But the story of Jews crashing through those quotas at schools where people had fought so hard to keep us out and then enrolling in such large numbers, that was a very sweet story indeed. There was a poetry to that, a sense of justice. And so the subsequent decline is poignant and worth a closer look. A few episodes from now, we'll discuss the diminishing presence in recent years of Jews in the Ivy League. That will be a major topic of our final episode about Harvard. But before that, we have an invitation to something far more tasty. Join us next time for Gatecrashers, Episode 5, Brown University and Mrs. Smith's Kosher Kitchen. Gatecrashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibowitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Leon Crame is our research assistant. Special thanks to Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman-Ader, and Daron Rousquet of Tablet Studios. Alana Newhouse, Morty Landown, Wayne Hoffman, Samantha Hacker, Kurt Hoffman, and all the staff at Tablet Magazine. And Christine Ragasa and Megan Larson, Seth Higgins, Cody Fitzpatrick, and Peter Fox. For more on the scandal at Horace Mann and Inky Clark's role in it, you can check out Great is the Truth, Secrecy, Scandal, and the Quest for Justice at the Horace Mann School by Amos Camel and Sean Elder. 
please go rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this series, tell a friend. Do you have a story you want to share about being Jewish at Yale or Dartmouth or Princeton or any of the Ivy Leagues? Did we get anything wrong? Do you have a comment for us? Please write to us at gatecrashers at tabletmag.com or leave us a voice memo at 917-310-0456. Remember to tell us your name and how we can get in touch with you. For more information about this show, check out tabletmag.com slash gatecrashers. And for more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Bright college years with pleasure rife, the shortest, gladdest years of life. How swiftly are we gliding by? Oh, why the times so quickly fly? You don't want the yell alma mater? The seasons.